Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 95 for the week ending Monday, February 13th. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu. Thanks for listening in. We have a jam-packed show for you today because it's been quite a busy news week as far as tech and innovation on the continent are concerned. Uh, you definitely want to stick around till later on when I speak to Alison Treadaway. She's a director and shareholder of the South African e-billing and e-marketing software and services company Striata. Alison joins me on the show to comment on the South African government's implementation of the Protection of Personal Information Act, otherwise known as POPI. Uh, she'll be unpacking the implications of this groundbreaking piece of legislation, its impact on business and private citizens alike. But before we get to that, we'll cover the week's headlines, which include South Africa's Reserve Bank warming up significantly to the use of blockchain technology and the notion of virtual currency, IBM, Google and Intel all throwing around big numbers in reference to their African development plans, and the Wari Group acquiring Tigo Senegal from Millicom in a nine-figure deal. That's all coming up. First, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the African Tech Roundup Live. Yes, my people, I'm going meta on you folks. After teasing those of you who follow us on social last week, we are finally ready to reveal the details of our upcoming live event. Now, many of you know that Global Entrepreneurship Congress 2017 is being hosted in Santon, Johannesburg from Monday the 13th of March to Thursday the 16th of March. Now, we're happy to announce that on the morning of the very last day of GEC 2017, that's Thursday, March 16th, we'll be hosting a live two and a half hour African Tech Roundup special in partnership with the Alpha Code Club and VC for Africa. Now we've themed the event State of the Startup and we'll be featuring special guests Olivier Lauchet, who's the founder and CEO of Trace, Dominique Collett, who's Senior Investment Executive at RMI as well as AlphaCode, Ben White, who's the founder and CEO of VC for Africa, and Daniel Rubenstein, who's the co-founder for My Treasury. Now a light breakfast will be served on arrival at 7.30am and the program itself will run uh, between 8.30am and 11am. And in keeping with the spirit of the Global Entrepreneurship Congress, the State of the Startup live event will glean entrepreneurial insights from my guests on the live show who will lift the curtain on the realities of launching, growing, and investing in tech startups on the African continent. I will follow the format you've all come to know and love. We'll start by chatting through the week's biggest headlines before delving into a candid discussion on what starting up in Africa looks like in 2017. Now, after that, I'm going to host a fireside chat with uh, Olivier Lauchet and uh, have him share how he built Trace from a modest, glossy publication to the world's biggest omni-channel urban media group that services a global audience of 200 million people in 11 languages. Now, if all that sounds good to you, head on over to africantechroundup.com forward slash live to apply for a seat at this event. Now, heads up though, space is limited, so if you're keen to attend, do act fast, and we can't wait to see you there. With all that said, it's on to this week's news. We start the same way we did last week, I'm afraid, by reporting on the fact that the Cameroonian internet blackout still hasn't lifted. Now, this has to be some kind of African record. Uh, it's pretty upsetting. Upsetting for me, it's not even affecting me directly. 
Uh, and so I'm not going to waste any time unpacking how we got here because uh, I did that last week. And I'm certainly not going to go into the unfairness of it all because it's pretty clear at this point that Africa needs to do better than this. And I'm purposely making that statement a collective one. We're better than this Africa. And so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Now, moving along, South Africa's Reserve Bank seems to be taking great pleasure in declaring its openness to virtual currency. So far, you might recall that only one African country on the continent has introduced a parallel virtual currency, and that's Tunisia with its e-dinar. Uh, Senegal is set to follow suit later this year with the ECFA. Um, but the Reserve Banks of the continent's two largest economies, uh, South Africa and Nigeria, couldn't have more dissimilar attitudes towards virtual currency. Now, Nigeria, on one hand, recently warned its financial institutions and citizens against using Bitcoin and other virtual currencies. Meanwhile, the Reserve Bank of South Africa has been running experiments using the distributed ledger system of the blockchain. Uh, they've actually become the first central bank on the continent to successfully circulate a smart contract on a Ethereum blockchain-based private network that it's set up for itself and other financial institutions. Now, uh, reports are surfacing of senior Reserve Bank officials showing hope in the potential of blockchain-enabled currencies to promote convenience, uh, inclusion, as well as uh, lower transactional cost. And the bank has even gone as far as saying that they might be open to floating a blockchain-based digital version of the South African RAND. Now, wouldn't that be something? So Kenya now, where the government has partnered with MasterCard to launch something called the Haduma Card. It's Kenya's first multi-purpose card that can be used to access social services. Now, MasterCard won the tender to roll out these smart cards back in 2015 as part of the Haduma Kenya program, uh, which leverages integrated technology platforms to provide Kenyans with access to various public services at service centers, as well as uh, enable them to pay for the use of public infrastructure, like public buses, for instance. Now, the government is aiming for Haduma centers to be one-stop shops for everything from birth and marriage certificates, national ID cards and passports, to business name registration, driver's licenses, and official police documentation. Now, I think I know what you're thinking. Um, this could turn into a cybersecurity nightmare, right? Well, MasterCard is assuring Kenyans that their, quote, multi-layered approach to protecting payments uh, will keep their data safe and ensure that, uh, you know, the integrity of the whole system. They're using EMV chip and pin technology uh, to help ensure safety, uh, even when a card is lost or stolen. But all in all, it's pretty convenient. I mean, once funds are loaded onto a prepaid card, cardholders can use their the Haduma card to pay for goods and services in store, online, uh, over the phone. They can withdraw cash from ATMs uh, and pretty much anywhere MasterCard is accepted locally or outside of Kenya, which is pretty dope. Now, people applying for this card uh, don't need to go through a credit check. They don't even have to have a bank account. And apparently no bank charges are even charged when citizens apply to get these cards. And despite there being no information on what citizens actually get charged every time they use the card, I'm calling this a win for financial inclusion. I think it's interesting that the uh, Kenyan government decided to go with plastic um, as opposed to, you know, going mobile, given how big, you know, mobile payments are in Kenya. Um, is, that's definitely a huge coup for MasterCard, who after they launched the Tukuze Agritech platform um, some weeks ago and now this, yeah, definitely a good 2017 for MasterCard so far. To Zimbabwe now, where MasterCard has been trending for very different reasons, albeit not because of anything they did, but because uh, EcoCash, which is Zimbabwe's largest mobile money service, well, they've announced another reduction in monthly transaction limits for MasterCard debit cards. 
and uh, this would make it the third reduction since last year. Cardholders are now limited to 400 US dollars per month with 200 US dollars being permitted for ATM withdrawals and the other $200 balance being allowed for point of sale transactions and online payments. In October last year, the transaction limit was brought down to $1,100 and then revised to $500 in December. Now, last week, uh, Standard Chartered Bank also announced some uh, unsettling news, uh, the fact that they will no longer be processing visa payments made outside of Zimbabwe. Now, it appears that there aren't sufficient amounts of foreign currency in the banking system to honor external obligations, and they can't have people making use of those cards uh, against monies they don't have. So, yeah, again, I can't help but observe how Zimbabwe is shaping up to be arguably uh, the world's most excellent use case for the adoption of cryptocurrency. Ah, well. But staying with Econet-related news, it's official. Following Neotel's successful absorption into the Liquid Telecom Group, uh, Econet now owns the continent's largest fiber network, and word is they're poised to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to expand their newly acquired data centers, wireless networks, and fixed-line broadband infrastructure. Now, they're clearly up to a whole lot more than updating logos and corporate colors, which they've certainly done. <laughs> Some jokes about that circulating on social media. But uh, according to Liquid Telecom CEO Nick Rudnick, Neotel is way over being South Africa's, quote, second network operator. Now, you'll recall that they were originally granted a license to end Telcom's monopoly in the South African market. But Rudnick and his executive team will no doubt be glad uh, that the acquisition formalities are over so that they can concentrate on helping the Econet group assert um, itself meaningfully in South Africa for the very first time, as well as concentrate on helping Neotel assimilate into Liquid Telecom's 15-country footprint that stretches across eastern, central, and southern Africa. Now, spare a thought for Vodacom, man, who, who failed to snap up Neotel because of regulatory hurdles. These days, I certainly can't help but be an Econet fanboy, loving what they're doing on the continent, really inspiring stuff, really do hope um, they make the most of the advantages they're building for themselves. To Senegal now, where the Wari Group is set to acquire the country's second biggest mobile phone operator, Tigo Senegal. They're buying it from the Luxembourg-based uh, Millicom International Cellular Group in a deal reportedly worth $129 million U.S. dollars. Now, to go through the sale, we'll need to score a nod from regulators, given how Wari is currently Senegal's biggest mobile telco. But currently, Millicom uh, provides mobile services to more than 57 million customers around the world, and its business focuses on Latin America as well as the African continent. Uh, Wari, on the other hand, provides digital financial services on the continent. They have 500,000 sending outlets worldwide as well as 45,000 paying points. And given how Tigo has a fairly sizable mobile money business, there's no doubt um, that it will fit in very nicely uh, with the rest of uh, Wari's portfolio. And so what's interesting, though, is that Millicom joins Bardi Etal on the divesting bandwagon. It does remain to be seen whether or not Senegalese regulators will permit the deal. We could very well have another Neotel Vodacom situation on our hands where another buyer like Osei Orange, who we know is on the hunt for, for deals on the continent, could just swoop in and buy Tigo right under Wari's nose because of competitive issues. So, yeah, this is an interesting one to watch. We'll definitely keep you posted on how it goes. Another acquisition news, South African tech firm Silvertree Internet Holdings, the parent company of the price comparison website PriceCheck, 
has bought Nigeria's top check for an undisclosed sum. And guess what? According to Silvertree, this effectively helps them create what they're calling Africa's largest online price comparison group. Now, you can't see it, but I'm totally rolling my eyes right now. And here's why. Now, I feel that these sorts of claims are great to make in the context of sharing real numbers. I'm talking in the context of e-commerce, things like unique visitors, uh, you know, bounce rates, uh, cost of acquisition, more importantly, revenue, profit, you know, stuff like that. I mean, otherwise, we could just as easily assume that two struggling or worse, you know, two failing businesses are just getting together to try and keep each other warm in these streets. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's just my little rant. But um, be that as it may, TopCheck is said to be Nigeria's largest price comparison site for financial services. Uh, they offer free online comparisons for insurance products, loans, and broadband internet plans. And the company is the brainchild of three Europeans, a certain Christian Weissner, uh, uh, Jose Figuero, and Thomas Pilar, who launched the business in 2014. They ran from Lagos and Berlin and managed to raise 1 million euro in venture capital back in 2015. Now TopCheck will form part of the Silver Tree subsidiary Compare Africa Group's portfolio of businesses, which operates in South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria. Um, they offer online price comparison of goods and services through websites like Compare Guru and PriceCheck, which of course Naspers recently acquired. Now, Silvertree seems to have taken a shine to Nigerian tech startups. This will be their third purchase in the country following following their acquisition of Insured.ng uh, from Spark in 2015, as well as Deal Day from Shinovic last year. Staying with Nigerian news, though, a moment of silence for Nigeria's biggest airline. Or, or maybe not, because they're not quite dead, in a sense. Um, in any case, Arik Air... Um, has gone into uh, what's called receivership. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the terminology, receivership is basically a form of what they call in South Africa business rescue. It's sort of like a hospice situation for companies. And it shouldn't be a hospice situation. It should be more like, uh, you know, rehab. Um, but it usually ends up being more like hospice. Uh, companies are put there or, you know, are, are forced into that position, usually by bankruptcy courts or creditors uh, who appoint a receiver to manage the company's affairs when it becomes apparent that they do, they can't meet their obligations. Now, unfortunately, precious few companies recover once they enter business rescue or receivership. This has happened despite Eric, which is only about a decade old, growing into Africa's biggest carrier by passenger numbers. Despite all this, the company has succumbed to heavy debt and and I suppose the you know Nigeria's worst recession in like twenty five years has also done its part to uh, bring about the, the demise of Arik. Um, it was inevitable in a sense because most of Arik's passengers are invoiced in Naira, while most of its obligations in terms of fuel and other major inputs are paid in dollars and you know, incidentally, servicing Nigeria is, is proving difficult for other airlines as well. I know United and Iberia, for example, no longer fly to Nigeria because it's just simply not profitable enough. And I have heard of other airlines complaining about how difficult they found it to repatriate millions of dollars worth of airfares that they've sold in Naira. Let's hope the story ends well for Arik. Otherwise, um, it's likely that the company gets dissolved and its assets get sold, which would really be a shame. To North Africa now, where Uridu Tunisia has partnered with Sparkle to establish a new point of presence in Sicily, Italy. 
Now, Uridu and Sparkle are promising their broadband customers an enhanced data experience as a result of reduced latency and shorter traffic routes for ISPs who exchange content via their network. Now, the new Sicily hub point of presence uh, provides direct access to the 19 submarine cables ecosystem that lands in Sicily and that connects Europe to Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and North America. Now, it's located closer than any other European peering point to North Africa, the Mediterranean, and the Middle East. So, Tunisia being located right right in the north there should uh, should benefit uh, substantially from their proximity. Uh, the new launch, though, is the latest in a series of initiatives that have resulted from a cooperative agreement that Sparkle and Uridu signed back in April 2016. And so, yeah, Tunisia, it'd be fun to know if you guys have started to experience uh, any tangible benefits, any noticeable benefits from uh, the new point of presence uh, that's been established. Do let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at African Roundup. And now for an update on the whole Dot Connect Africa Trust versus ICANN debacle. Now, we'll, we'll call Dot Connect Africa DCA from this point on. Um, but yeah, DCA has now lost its second motion to stop ICANN delegating the Dot Africa general top-level domain. Now, this follows their application being denied by a California Superior Court last week. Now, DCA's first motion for preliminary injunction was denied by the Superior Court uh, in December 2016. ICANN, or the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, well, they've since declared their intent to delegate the .Africa GTLD to the ZA Central Registry, which currently administers the .co.za and the .org.za top-level domains. ICANN is claiming that the judge found that the covenant not to sue found in the new GTLD applicant guidebook is enforceable and that the judge cited some federal district court order in the Ruby Glenn LLC versus ICANN matter as a president. Now, that's the most straightforward part of the ruling. There's much more to why the judge dismissed DCA's claims against ICANN for fraud and unfair business practices, but I don't want to bore you to death or myself for that matter. So the bottom line is, barring DCA seeking some other form of legal relief, the Dot .Africa uh, GTLD does seem all set to become a thing. But given how long this back and forth has gone for, uh, I'm still not holding my breath. So let's see what happens. To South Africa now, we're following the MTN Group announcing a massive annual loss that many of us saw coming. Rumor has it that the company is now trying to shake off the horrendous year they've had by acquiring a 49% stake in the government-owned Iranian ISP, Iranian Net. Now, MTN is looking to muscle into that territory and take full advantage uh, of the fact that US-led sanctions against Iran have been set aside. Uh, MTN already owns a 49% stake in the mobile carrier Iran Cell. They've quietly started repatriating some of the $1 billion US dollars that uh, was stuck in Iran during the international embargo. Now, you might also recall that in October 2016, we reported on MTN investing 20 million euro in Iran's first ride-sharing service, Snap.ir. But it's still all whispers as far as MTN buying a piece of Iranian net. Nothing official certainly coming from the company. And while potentially quite lucrative, it would be a risky endeavor whichever way you look at it, especially in view of Trump's, well, rather, well, unpredictable, let's say, presidential antics. Uh, it uh, could very well turn out to be a very bad idea for MTN indeed. However, as soon as we know more than we currently do, we'll definitely pass it on. Now, for a few more South African items before we round things off with some international news. Uh, perhaps let's start with how the South African investment firm Investec has quietly become a major funding partner 
to rooftop solar startups in the U.S. Now, Investec is responsible for lending $880 million to rooftop solar developers and financiers in 2016 alone. Now, this is according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Now, apparently, that's more than half of the bank debt raised by the entire industry in the U.S. So all Investec has done is fill a gap that was left wide open by risk-averse banks who typically prefer to finance big solar projects that meet their discerning taste for investment worthiness. Uh, basically, banks who are not terribly concerned about meeting uh, the, the rather specific needs of the rooftop solar business, uh, which works by signing up thousands of individuals who enter into contracts with energy companies based on having good credit scores. Now, in order to meet these needs, Investec has had to facilitate fairly sophisticated uh, structured finance arrangements, and that's required a significant amount of organizational will and foresight to see through. And so hats off to Investec for not waiting uh, for some mobile telco or some other startup to waltz in and do what banks are supposed to do for everybody, which is help make things happen. My thing is, I don't know when fi the financial industry will ever learn that it doesn't pay to only invest time and energy in landing the big, obvious, bankable business. Um, it's taken an African financial services business to help Americans finance solar panels on their homes. <laughs> I can't possibly be the only one who sees the irony in that. And now in some interesting VOD news, DSTV's Showmax streaming service is leveraging its relationship with Vodacom to offer a budget content package that's priced at less than half of its standard package. Now they're calling it Showmax Select and as expected, it won't offer Showmax's full range of content, but uh, it will feature a strong focus on local content. And Showmax says that streaming will be optimized for lower data consumption on smartphones and tablets. Uh, the, the cool thing is people won't need to have a credit card in order to sign up because the monthly fee can come off a subscriber's Vodacom account, which I think is great. So let's see how this works out. I mean, we, we've spoken quite a bit about how Showmax definitely needs to uh, partner quite closely with uh, mobile telco. I think if it has to, if it has to have any prayer at uh, at um, scaling up successfully and quickly enough, really, to take on uh, the likes of Quesa and Netflix as well as Amazon. So let's see how this works out for them. And so, uh, South Africa's communications regulator ICASA is set to hold public hearings this week that will inform how scarce radio frequency spectrum will be allocated and exploited going forward. Now, the spectrum issue in South Africa is highly politicized, and um, I think there's a simple reason for that, really. And I reckon that's because uh, the best-case scenario for big telcos is to have spectrum all to themselves and pay as, as close to nothing as possible for it. Uh, and that's, you know, on one hand. And then government uh, wants the most they can get for Spectrum without signing away the country's legacy, um, uh, you know, to powerful foreign-controlled multinationals, um, except multinationals aren't in the habit of just donating money for no return um, or no value. And then... You know, you have the telcos arguing that the government doesn't know the first thing about managing and monetizing tech infrastructure, which is somewhat true. And, uh, and, and of course, they argue that the best thing government can do for the people is allow big business uh, to do its thing and, and make the best possible use of the spectrum and the technologies that, you know, that stem from it. The only problem with that is that telcos uh, have demonstrated time and time again that they can't be trusted not to abuse the quasi-monopolistic positions that they so desperately crave. And so 
as far as we're concerned, as the people, we're stuck here in the middle and all we want is reliable wireless services at affordable prices. That's it to me in a nutshell. Um, uh, but ICASA's press release basically states that they want to update the National Radio Frequency Plan and that they want to make sure that the spectrum is used efficiently. Yeah, so that's the line they're towing. But we'll keep you posted on what the likes of MTN, Vodacom, Telcom, Mnet, SABC, all those folks. Well, they'll, they'll all get a chance to speak at these hearings and we'll definitely be listening to, to hear what they're suggesting ICASA do in terms of regulating what's left of, of, the, these, of this vital spectrum. And so now for some international news to round things off. Uh, there seems to be a space race on, um, and it involves American tech firms who are on a race to save Africa, or so they want us all to think. So IBM made a whole meal this week of the $70 million they plan to spend on a new online training platform that aims to train 25 million African youths over the next five years in what they're calling, quote, sought after advanced IT skills, including social engagement, digital privacy, and cyber protection, end quote. And so in a press release, which milks every opportunity to promote uh, IBM's flagship products, you know, things like Watson, IBM Blue Mix. Uh, you know, they also name drop every possible topical IT buzzword of the moment. Uh, look, just reading through it, I just can't help sensing that this is a glorified PR initiative. Truth is, I, I would love to be wrong about this. So I'll tell you what we'll do. Over the next five years, I'd like you guys to put me onto people whose lives have been dramatically altered or whose lives are being dramatically altered by the generous efforts of our friends at IBM. You know, so that I can bury my cynicism and give props where it's due. Now, the same goes for Google's Train 1 Million Africans initiative and Intel's She Will Connect project that aims to train 5 million women. Uh, now, if you or anyone else you know has benefited meaningfully from any of uh, these three rather high-profile We're Here for Africa projects, uh, we want to know about it. Hit us up on Twitter at African Roundup, on Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup, or email us via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now for some billion-dollar news courtesy of the Ford Motor Company, which uh, is apparently betting that one day we won't need cars. We especially don't need the kind of car that unexpectedly uh, bursts into flames like the 2014 Ford Cougar. <laughs> Jokes aside, Ford is sinking $1 billion uh, into an artificial intelligence startup called Argo AI, uh, which will operate as a subsidiary to Ford to develop next-generation mobility services. Uh, and this is where Ford reckons the world is going. And of course, if they're right, and I think they are, that probably means that the traditional business of making and selling cars will become obsolete in due course. And so in the context of that conviction, $1 billion isn't all that much money, to be honest. Uh, not for a company like Ford. Um, so let's see what Argo AI churns out. It's a Silicon Valley firm. We know how easily they burn through money, so uh, it should be interesting to see uh, what they do. The way I see it, they'll probably spend a lot of that money trying to attract the right kind of skills to their company and attract it away from their competitors just so they can compete because it's really turned into that sort of um, uh, resource race or resource-driven race uh, to the first self-driving car and that kind of thing. So let's see how that works out for them. Now, if we had time, we'd talk about how sad it is to see Twitter falter. 
Um, yeah, I'm a huge Twitter fan. It has to be my favorite app of all time. Um, yes, yes, favorite app of all time. And uh, to see investors giving up on them after the poor results they've posted uh, is a bit sad. Um, yeah, it's it's Twitter and SoundCloud for me. It's they're, they're the two sort of you know companies that I really hope make it. I'm not I'm not a huge fan of who runs them, how they were founded, all the rest of it. I mean, uh, SoundCloud, I have no issue. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of you know the you know the leadership crisis of, of Twitter. I really don't care. I just that's just really an app I love, and yeah. Already, I'm spending too much time on it. Let me move on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, finally, um, how about this? Two golden oldies trying to reinvent themselves. And I'm talking about Nokia and BlackBerry. Now, this past week, both companies announced software plays that they no doubt hope will bring back the good old days. Now, Nokia has made a 347 million euro bid to buy a company called CompTel. It's a company that makes a software that reportedly helps mobile telcos around the world deliver something like 20% of the world's mobile data to their customers. And so uh, with infrastructure manufacturing and equipment sales dropping sharply for the likes of Nokia and Ericsson and others, Nokia is looking to position itself to help mobile operators transition from being traditional communications companies to digital service providers. And we've heard, certainly heard on the continent companies like MTN make a big deal about trying to tra- make that transition. So maybe they are onto something. But meanwhile, uh, BlackBerry has done the unthinkable. They've opened up some of their legendary secure messaging and file sharing technology for developers to use in building apps in order to help bring in those dollars. Um, so heads up, developers, the development kit um, that BlackBerry is releasing this month will include tools for building chat apps, uh, video and voice calling, secure file sharing, and sending out push notifications to mobile phones. You know, to the two people you know who still use BlackBerry phones. Ah, <laughs> oh, shame. Uh, I don't know. It's a little late for this, I think. Um yeah, they're a little late to the party. I guess they saw Microsoft show Linux some love and basically, you know, you know, all but become a, a an open source company. Uh, and, and so they see this and they think, we may end up all alone out here on proprietary, you know, software island, you know, safe, but, but alone. <laughs> and maybe eventually dead. And so good luck with it, BlackBerry. Maybe someone will show them some love. Uh, and and continue helping them grow the software side of their business. I mean, it's tough what they need to do because they not only have to worry about building upgrade quality software that people want uh, and getting developers to care about it enough to, you know, to develop for it, uh, but now they also have to go up against some really good competitors in, in a space that, you know, they basically didn't attack with, you know, sufficient vigor in the first place. And so that's where we leave it in terms of this week's biggest news. And now, as promised, I'm about to share my chat with Alison Treadaway, who is a director and shareholder of the South African e-billing and e-marketing software and services business, Striata. Now, personal data protection is a huge global issue at the moment. And in the past on the show, I've had guests like Dr. Bukosi Marivate unpack the importance of African nations drafting legislation to protect citizens from exploitation. Uh, and so, yeah, we've, we've definitely delved into these issues. But now Alison uh, joins me on the show to comment on how South Africa is poised to try and do just that, protect its citizens through the implementation 
of the Protection of Personal Information Act, aka Poppy. Now, she'll be unpacking the implications of this groundbreaking piece of legislation, its implication on business as well as private citizens. And she'll be highlighting some of the pain points that other African countries will no doubt seek to be addressing through laws of their own. So take a listen. And so on the surface, it sounds like we're talking about something that's South Africa, um, South Africa specific. But if, if you think about all our listeners living in other parts of the continent and around the world who are looking to interact with the continent and use South Africa as a gateway or perhaps grow from you know, other geographic regions into South Africa, many of our listeners being uh, you know, digital businesses um, that aren't necessarily, you know, don't necessarily have uh, you know, brick and mortar presence here in South Africa, what are some of the things that some, some of our listeners in that position ought to be thinking about with regards to this law? Well, right up front, once this law is in place and the compliance period, which we believe will be a grace period of about 12 months, once that is up and everyone now theoretically complies, it makes South Africa a very attractive place to do business with from outside South Africa, and I'll tell you why. For example, your laws in the UK, which our laws are modeled on, require that if you're going to do business with an organization in a different territory, that organization must be located somewhere which has equal or better data protection laws. Now, we don't at this stage have that. So if we have a UK company, theoretically, passing data to a company in South Africa, that UK company might have a problem if there's an issue. Once the act is in place, then South Africa becomes almost a, a safe haven that, organ, that um, territories with those kinds of data privacy laws are able to do business with us much easier. So that's a really positive development. That's number one. Um, number two, Poppy does have some obligations around data transfer. So, for example, if you're going to gather data in South Africa and you're going to take that data and you're going to house it on a server outside of South Africa, there are obligations around that. You can't simply do it. Our laws allow, or our legislation will allow, that we can house that data in an equal or better data privacy territory. So that's that's okay. So for example, the UK is equal or better, Germany certainly equal or better. But if you want to go to the low cost areas and house your data there so that you can reduce your cost of operation, Puppy is going to require that you have jumped through a quite a few hoops before you can actually do that. So those companies now that are hosting data overseas and are pulling it back to South Africa to process and hosting it back on those servers overseas um, to store, they're going to need to look at that, that whether they can get those processes to comply. And that compliance has to do with permissions. They may have to ask permission to take my data as Alison Treadaway and house it outside of the country. And so let's talk about how this will be regulated. I know in December of last year, the information regulator was inducted. And uh, what should we all expect in as far as these laws being policed as soon as they're enacted? Well, there's a lot of rumors. I don't think there's been really an announcement that I have seen, but the uh, information regulator has been appointed. There's a chairperson, there's two permanent people, there's two part-time people. So that is now in place. That body needs to announce the enactment date. So they need to get that, I assume, approved by Parliament President, and then that enactment date is set in stone, and then they need to announce the grace period. So that grace period, whether it's 12 months, 24 months, it seems to be generally accepted to be 12 months, that grace period is up, then that information regulator has certain duties that they can 
carry out against organizations that haven't complied. Um, and, it, you know, then it's a developing scenario. So, for example, um, as soon as that period is over, if there is a breach, that breach will then be measured and the response to that breach will be measured against the Poppy Act. As it stands now, that breach will be measured against general industry best practice. As these ideas start to become to mainstream on the continent, do you expect that there might become uh, uh, this huge flow or this huge trend towards you know, data being hosted uh, on the continent? Look, I'm not certain. From a South African po- point of view, I do expect that organizations that don't have a massive team of lawyers, the easiest solution is to bring their data back to South Africa if they can work that through into their operational costs. Organizations that have a whole heap of lawyers will probably be more likely to um, create a legal framework under which they can house that data elsewhere in the lower cost environment or in the cloud. And then they will rely on their legal framework to then you know, support them if there is ever a breach. How do startup founders from outside South Africa go about finding partners, uh, subcontractors, uh, businesses, uh, etc., to work with on the continent uh, uh, in South Africa who who are compliant. How do they go about finding those uh, such businesses and 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 verifying that they're indeed compliant with these new laws? This exact question is being discussed on the internet, um, primarily because there's no indication that the information regulator will have a certification process. So they're not going to come and audit an organisation and give you a stamp. So someone who wants to do business with a company in in South Africa is going to have to request their poppy gap analysis and their own internal certification in terms of their their compliance unless the information regulator does get to the point where they are doing some kind of certification. My expectation of a new regulator in this environment is that they will deal with the exceptions first. So we have an ongoing environment of data breaches it's happening. You know, it happens more often than anyone thinks. And if anyone says in their own business they will never have a data breach, they're not being truthful. It can happen. Um, so I think the regulator is going to be very busy dealing with that. And the legislation requires that a business who has had a potential breach or thinks there was a breach or actually there was a breach, they have to have certain response processes. They have to have um, logged that breach with the regulator. There's a whole process that they have to go down. Um, and I think once that regulator is up and running, I think they're going to be very busy with that. And so broadly speaking, what do you think are some of the misconceptions um, in terms of the public and our understanding of uh, data security, personal data security specifically? Perhaps some of the things we're naive about or complacent about. What are our blind spots? Okay, I think we have a lot of blind spots. Number one is who we give our data to. Guy stops you in a, in a shopping center and says, I'm doing a survey, can I answer a few things, and takes down your name. I mean, how do you know who that guy's going to give your data to? Um, I think we're too free, both physically and digitally, with giving away data. And a lot of that has to do with social media. So on social media, you're quite happy to have your address, your telephone number. You know, you, know, you haven't reviewed your privacy settings. And that information's out there for anyone to find. So I think individuals, um, we need to be a lot more careful with who we give our information to and why we give it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is passwords, right? So a lot of data is stolen from these large organizations who have big databases with data that we've provided them. And because 
someone has been lax about their own personal security, that's whether it's a password into a social media organization, a password onto your machine, a password onto a server at an organization, if you always follow a very strict password protocol, change your password, it can never be weak, you know, it shouldn't be password 1234 or your name and your birth date, it needs to be something that someone could not, um, could not guess programmatically. And I think if everyone just becomes a lot stricter about their own personal password security, that would go a long way to making it much more difficult for someone to find and to exploit your personal data. And in the third instance, I think people don't really understand what rights the Protection of Personal Information Act is going to give them as a consumer. It gives them a bunch of rights to control their own data insofar as they could phone up their service provider and say, I want to know where you got my data, what data you're holding on me, is it correct? And I don't think that you need to be storing my mother's maiden name because it's not relevant to, you know, what you need my data for. So it gives people a whole bunch of rights. I just wonder whether people are going to use those rights or wait until something bad happens to use those rights. And hopefully people will see this as a way to take back control of their data before something bad happens. Many, many thanks to Alison Treadaway for making the time to be on the show. To listen to the full conversation I had with Alison, do head to africantechroundup.com and then go ahead and click on Quick Tech Chats on the main menu. And of course, many thanks to Alpha Code and VC for Africa because they're, of course, powering the upcoming African Tech Roundup live event happening in Santon, Johannesburg on the morning of Thursday, March 16th. For all the details on the event and to apply to attend, uh, do head straight to africantechroundup.com forward slash live. That's africantechroundup.com forward slash live. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. There's a lot to get through today. Look forward to having you join me again. But for now, I'm Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa. Thank you.